Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Win Israel Fund. Delighted to be back for this month's webinar. We've had a series of webinars for close to the last two years, sponsored by Win Israel Fund, as many of you know, and as many of you are involved with, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Win Israel Fund is the premier organization doing what it can to support continued Jewish life in Judea and Samaria. What we do is not getting any um, easier and it's not getting any less important with everything that's happening in the world. So I'm just going to excuse myself for this evening. I finally, after two years of running away from it, came down with Corona. I'm gonna do my best tonight. I did not wanna cancel this webinar, especially because I've known Professor Eugene Kontrovich for a few years and I did not want you guys to not have the opportunity to hear from him, especially with everything going on today. So I'm gonna do my best. I've got my oil from Guy Ehrlich down in the Jordan Valley that includes some of the ancient Afar Simone oil that's now regrowing. I've got my traditional medication and Josh Fleischer, who does our virtual videos, another thing that we've been putting on the air in the last two years, told me to take a slug of Arak. That advice I didn't take. I might take it after the webinar. Eugene, I know, would be very, very proud of me if I did so. In any event, Professor Eugene Kontorovich, who is joining us tonight, is a professor at George Mason's Antonin Scal I got to put my glasses on. That's that. Antonin Scalia School of Law and the director of its Center for International Law in the Middle East. Before coming to George Mason, he was a professor at Northwestern University School of Law for 11 years, an expert in international and constitutional law. He has published over 30 academic articles in the leading law reviews and peer-reviewed journals, and his scholarship has been cited in leading international law cases in the U.S. and abroad. He is also the head of the International Law Department at the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is based in Jerusalem's think tank and is recognized as one of the world's preeminent experts on international law and the Israel-Arab conflict. And he has, quote unquote, has emerged as a one-man legal lawfare brain trust for the Jewish state as one of the cagiest commentators, according to recent essays in Haaretz, not noted for necessarily its right-wing views. That was me. Professor Kontorovich also plays a leading role in many Israel-related policy matters and is regarded as the intellectual architect of U.S. state laws regarding boycotts of Israel and his work at Kohelet. He regularly advises senior Israelis, U.S. and European officials on a variety of diplomatic issues. And there's so much more. He's been published in just about every place you would want to be published. Maybe some that you wouldn't, but that's not on his bio. And so without further ado, Professor Eugene Kontorovich, on tonight's topic, although we might digress from it because he has so much to say about so many other things, Putin and the Palestinians, and as someone who I believe was born in Kiev, really well-placed to be able to explain to us what the heck is going on over there and how it affects Israel. The war between Russia and Israel captivated the world, huge amounts of human tragedy. It's a tragedy, clearly. I think that's the first thing we need to say, a huge amount of human suffering. But that fact is not enough to distract those who wish to delegitimize Israel from using this, like pretty much any other bad thing that happens in the world, as an opportunity to also delegitimize Israel, which is, it's quite extraordinary. It's actually, there's lots of very good Russian and Ukrainian jokes on the subject that like, there's another another problem, the Jews are behind it. So Putin is, Putin is trying to take over parts of Ukraine or all of Ukraine. And the international community has been prodded into taking some relatively strong sanctions. And haters of Israel see this, and they're like, oh, we want that too. We do it for Israel. Why not Israel? Right? Once they see these two of sanctions being used, they, the only thing they can think about is using it against the Jewish state. Now, of course, the context could not be more different. And I want to say sanctions, sanctions to us might have a particular meaning. The BDS movement 
but it's just a tool. Sanctions are just a tool. Sanctions just mean economic or uh, related political diplomatic measures short of war that countries take against other countries. They're neither good nor bad. It all depends on how they're being used, right? Just sanctions like, be good? Sure. Of course, sanctions, let me, uh, sanctions are just a tool, like bullets, right? Are bullets good or bad, right? Well, so... And for what reason? So sanctions are a measure of economic and political coercion whose legitimacy depends on the legitimacy of the underlying coercion. The Arab League, of course, imposed sanctions on Israel, which in itself was not problematic, totally legit for the Arab League to sanction Israel, expected, of course, because from the creation of the state of Israel, the Arab League was in a state of war with Israel. When you're at war with a country, you typically also cut off economic ties. Not always, but it's you know definitely definitely an option. The problem with the Arab League boycott, for example, wasn't that they sanctioned Israel, but that they sanctioned completely unrelated companies from totally different countries, neutral countries, simply because they did business with Israel. And then even went further and had a tertiary boycott of companies from another country who did business with companies from a, se- a third, a second country. Would business with Israel, that's expanding the scope of the conflict and really you know, punishing people who are not party to it, which you try to reduce the scope of war rather than rather than extend. And it's very similar to the argument that proponents of BDS make. They said boycotts are a great thing. Boycotts, in a narrow, limited context, of course, and I think they exaggerate it, were uh, used in certain circumstances by the civil rights movement in the South. That make boycotts good or bad. It doesn't tell you anything about boycotts. Boycotts are a tool. Boycotts, of course, were also uh, implemented in Nazi Germany against Jewish-owned businesses. So sanctions are just a tool. But one thing we see is the relatively high that the international community requires. And and also we see sanctions are not legally required, typically, right? Some countries are sanctioning, some countries are not. And most countries are only sanctioning to the extent that they, let's say, is consistent with their own domestic comfort. So, for example, they might cut off certain business. They might close like uh, McDonald's in uh, Russia. That's probably going to be more inconvenient to Russia than, than to America. But, you know, the uh, nobody is stopping fuel imports from Russia. Why? It's such a good way of sanctioning Russia. But because you're not, because it's not required. It's not required. And it's very important to know what Russia did to trigger this, these sanctions. So Russia in 2008 invaded Georgia in a pure war and uh, took little pieces of Georgia and uh, conquered them, which remain under its control. Sanctions. So the, the, the only sanction Russia received was the honor of hosting in the subsequent year, the Winter Olympics in Sochi, uh, a very short distance from the occupied Georgian territory, and he housed some of the workers for this Olympics in settlements, let's say, in occupied Georgia. That was the sanction. Then a few years later, 2014, they conquered parts of Ukraine, Donbass, and Crimea. Some mild sanctions are put on certain industries, but Russia remains a respected member of the international community. Indeed, after all of these things, right, conquering parts of one country, conquering parts of another country, big parts, in the case of, in the case of, of Ukraine, Russia remained a member in good standing of the Middle East Quartet, which is a... Now- Why did they come now? Like what? what happened what? in 2022 that made suddenly everybody so get that, all so, so not So basically invading and taking territory from a neighboring country does not seem to be enough to trigger sanctions. So of course, there's no comparison to Israel, 
which any territory that it controls kind of came under its control in a purely defensive war. And that's nowhere more true than Judea and Samaria, because, of course, Israel did not even attack across the um, Jordanian armistice line at the beginning of the yeah. Sixth Day. It wanted actually didn't think that it could handle additional enemies. It was only when Jordan joined Syria and Egypt on the third or fourth day of the war that Israel attacked, fired on Israel, that Israel counterattacked very successfully. So what's different now? I think it's very clear what's different. The, the scale, I think, is what's different. But in this case, Putin seems intent on completely taking over and subjugating an entire other country. And for the international community, maybe this is too much, right? Previously, when it was just little pieces, he got away quite well. So this is just too much. And we know this because President Biden said this, right? He said, we expect a minor incursion, minor incursion, limited incursion. And, uh, you know, that would not be the end of the world or trigger suddenly these kind of uh, sanctions. But, and, you know, that's, that's certainly what I expected. But Putin made clear early in the war, his uh, objectives seem to be the complete replacement of the government in Kiev and turning it into a, a, Russian, a Russian subject state, client state, Russian subject state. But mm. at the same time, at the same time, these things are sort of idiosyncratic. And the, and the response does not follow any clear rule, right? So the response in the Ukrainian situation happens to be one way, in part because I think the international community doesn't see it as the West, does not see it as too different from their interests. Because let's take another country that wants to, that wants to you know, turn neighboring states into puppet states that, want, that fights wars of aggression in those puppet states, supports or renegade groups in, the, in those states to create puppet states under its suzerainty. Iran, right? Iran has basically taken over the government of Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, and Syria, completely Syria, Syria, and is fighting wars uh, in all vastly destructive wars, vastly higher body counts in, in, all, of, in all, all of these territories. But the international community's response is to the international community's response. Guys, uh, don't do the chats right now because it's a little distracting. It's all right. Just ignore them. We'll get them later. Let's I can keep trying them. The chat after. The, the international community's response, right? So they say, we're united, sanctions against Russian aggression, but a removal of sanctions in the That's face of even greater Iranian aggression. And I want to say one important lesson that we need to learn. You know, the Ukrainians would much rather there not be sanctions on Russia now, and that sanctions have been imposed earlier, right? So the Mm -hmm. sanctions now are, in a sense, a band-aid, I think, to assuage Western feelings of guilt for not having acted sooner. And Putin made clear his intentions. He said Ukraine is not a real country. He made clear that he, you know, did not regard Ukrainian um, sovereignty or territorial integrity as uh, legitimate, and that he uh, he would work against them. Uh, but mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, that's just talk. And I want to say the you know the Ukrainians would much rather have uh, you know McDonald's open in Russia now, and uh, Russian troops you know not outside of Kiev because you know because if the West had, you know, if the West had taken a firmer stance previously, so mm-hmm. we're of course of course it's doing the opposite the opposite in regards to Iran. And I want to say in a sense it's quite clear one way in which this war could have been completely averted. Right? And in a sense, the war, this war is clearly the fault of Ukraine, America, England, France. And Russia doesn't pick fights with nuclear powers. It picks fights with what it perceives to be small, weak states, smaller, weaker states, which is Ukraine, 
had nuclear weapons. Ukraine had nuclear Guys, stay off the chat, seriously. Or put it in the Q&A, because then it doesn't pop up on my screen. Weapons. And the international community, the West in particular, thought it was very important for Ukraine not to have nuclear weapons for the sake of peace. And so Ukraine was convinced to trade nuclear weapons for, in 1995, 1994, I don't recall, in what was known as the Belgrade Declaration. And in this decor, in the Belgrade Declaration, Ukraine agrees to give up all of its strategic weapons in exchange for, wait, get this, Russia is going to recognize their existence as a state and pledge to respect their territorial integrity. Wow, look, Russia recognized their So it must be real. They're never going to change their mind. They're going to go back on it. They signed it, so it must be real. The United States and other Western powers also signed this document as guarantors. Those guarantees, of course, which didn't commit these countries, clearly did not commit these countries to any particular action. Are worthless. Nothing. They did nothing to stop, to prevent. They did nothing to prevent a series of Russian aggressions against Ukraine. And so what did Ukraine get? You know, everyone was so happy. Everyone applauded when Ukraine gave up. It was seen as a big diplomatic accomplishment. But one thing you learned, you know, when you, after the photo ops for the big diplomatic accomplishment, a year later, and nobody remembers your name, or they certainly don't remember what you gave up. Right? And then, you know, fast forward, fast forward 20, 20 years, and Russia is invading Ukraine. Okay, so 20 years went by in the lifetimes of the people who signed it. It didn't happen right away. Russia, Russia waited. And 20 years later, it can't, Ukraine can't get its nuclear weapons back. Right? All it has, all it's left with is the Belgrade Declaration, which is obviously not enough. And there's a very powerful lesson here. Don't give up your strategic assets for a piece so, of paper. If I may add, so if I may put in here, the, a lot of this is resonating for me, and I'm sure virtually all of our viewers, with the situation that Israel is in. Letters of that were given to the Israelis that if we leave Gaza, for example, there'll be some kind of guarantees that if violence comes out of there, we will be protected. And then somebody can't find the letter. And constant pressure on Israel to give up our security highlands, to give up weaponry. I don't know if we have nuclear, but if we did, okay, that seems to be on the table also. In general, to weaken ourselves and, from what you're saying, put ourselves in the very kind of same position that the Ukraine is in now. So as, as Israelis, as people who are watching this and care about Israel, and I want, I'll get to that question in one second because I just want to, to, oh, you know what, let's do that now. Let's do that now. Well, how do you see Israel, you know, the lessons that Israel should learn from sitting on the sideline here, although not necessarily on the sideline, because we seem to be pulled in on both sides in some very awkward ways in the last couple of weeks. What do you think the lessons are for us here? I think it's quite explicit. The West wants to impose upon Israel the reverse lessons of Iraq. That is to say, they want to create what makes Russia so difficult. Why does the West not want to tackle Russia directly? Right, they're thinking they're going to give arms maybe to the Ukrainians, but they're not really giving good arms. Or the, the, the economic sanctions are limited. They're not going to help Ukraine fight. That would be crazy. Because Russia has nuclear weapons. When a country has nuclear weapons, you don't mess with them so much. Right. So, and you certainly, if they just want to nibble, nibble up little pieces of neighboring countries, please be our guest. Anything is better than World War III. And of course, now we're told. So the West is both America in particular, want Britain, France, they want to, Iran to have nuclear weapons and Israel to give up its major strategic asset, Judea and Samaria, the strategic heights. It wants to 
take away Israel's strategic assets while giving strategic weapons, allowing Iran to obtain uh, strategic weapons. And when we learn from the Belgrade Declaration, it will feel good about doing the signing ceremony. Everyone's going to be so happy. No one will remember what you gave up. And the only thing people will know is the new power reality that you are weak and your enemy is strong. And if your enemy wants a little bit more, why, why don't we let them take it? Huh? Can you, I can easily imagine a President Biden making a limited incursion speech about, about Israel. Right? Uh, you know, Iran's, Iran, Iran's militia, Iran's proxy militia, Hamas or whoever it will be, they're only making a limited incursion. What, we want to have World War III about this? Let them be. Uh, right, and Putin's major miscalculation, he was getting a little too greedy and not doing it. And I would not expect the Iranians to make this kind of mistake. First of all, they don't have the same kind of government. They have a more collegial government. You know, more people talking about it. They're patient, they're intelligent, they're strategic. But they'll do it exactly the right way. And we see no one is willing to confront the nuclear power, which makes it infinitely important to prevent the emergence of bad nuclear powers because there's no going back, right? And once the, the pressure will all be in the opposite direction to avert confrontation and to appease the nuclear power even further once it's given. And in a sense, you know, it could be, some people have theorized that the moral indignation, clearly Russia has committed an act of aggression, violation of international law, but the unusual level of moral indignation compared to, let's say, past actions or compared to genocide in China may be a kind of penance ritual, right? That is to say, international community is prepared to do something horrible in Europe with Iran, right? To create a new super Putin. So that's like, uh, you know, we're going to make sure, criticizing the little Putin is uh, a great, they're going to make a great Putin out of the Ayatollahs. Do you believe really, Professor Kantorovich, that the Europeans and the Americans don't see the danger to themselves? Let's say they're willing to throw Israel under the bus. Forget about Ukraine altogether. Let's say on the other side of the world where China's chomping at the bit, Taiwan knows that it's next. Okay, all these imperialistic governments are just frothing at the mouth right now. Does the West really believe that when all the little guys go down, they're not next? It seems hard to believe, but it seems so. European countries have different positions. I think many of them are being dragged along by the United States. Others are just greedy and have significant economic interests in Iran. You know, that they may be, you know, next on the firing line, but they're also going to be first to profit. And, you know, wow. part, of, part of the question is, you know, what your, what your future planning horizon is. Let's take the Belgrade Declaration. Huh? It's 20 years between when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons and when Russia came back for more. Right? In the scheme of history, in the scheme of, you know, human lifetime, that's not like a particularly long time, but uh, in the terms of, you know, so let's say the, the Americans are thinking it'll be 20 years till they're like, get ready for Israel. I think it would be less. So like, we got like 30 years. That's like an infinite time. Who's going to blame? Who's going to go back and blame today's politicians then? Right? They're all going to be dead, like looking at their ages. They're going to be um, dead if that happens. Not just today's okay. politicians. So I think part of it is like short, um, short timing, short planning horizons, but it's it's mystifying because there's basically nothing about Iran, the government of Iran, to make it an attractive, an attractive interlocutor. There's a lot attractive about the people of Iran, which the United States seems almost systematically intent on abandoning. Yes, and I know that from other experts that we've had here, that actually the Iranian people 
are um, suffering probably more than anybody else right now due to their regime. You know, we could say the same thing for the Russians. The people who aren't eating McDonald's is not Putin who's wearing, I don't know, $50,000 jackets. It's the little guy in the street who's suffering from the sanctions, who is probably not happy about what's going on, but can't really say so because he lives in a fear society and not in a free society. I just wanted to touch on what we had advertised as as like a you know major plank of tonight, which is that when it comes to our, our local neighbors and our, our fun people that we that we share this land with currently, they seem to have a penchant for grabbing on to whoever's the victim and associating with them. So what we've been hearing in the last few weeks is a lot of, you know, the, the Palestinians are like the Ukrainians, the Israelis are like the Russians, and we've come in and we've taken over. Do you, do you think that's do you think that's having an effect or that's just you know, they they glom onto Black Lives Matter and to gay rights and to whatever it is, just because they need to be the victims. That's the only way that they can get the the word out on how terrible Israel is, is by somehow associating themselves with other victims. Do you think that that's effective? Is that changing anyone's mind? Does the Arab world think like, oh, please, like, you know, we know what's really going on here. The Arab world for sure thinks, please. But whether it changes the minds of kind of educated Western audiences, I don't know. It's very hard. It's very hard. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's successful. I, it seems a, a little silly, but opportunistic and parasitic. I think there, there are important points to make about it. So, if you know, so Russia is being sanctioned because it's trying to take over the entirety of its neighbor. Who's like that in the Middle East? Hmm. Isn't that what Jordan and Egypt and Syria did in 1948? Imagine, imagine if uh, you know the Ukrainians are very successful. And God really does miracles for them. And they not only manage to repel Putin to his previous positions, Russia to their uh, pre-war positions, would be very impressive. I, I don't actually see that currently happening. Russia's made a very significant territorial advances, which I think would be hard to completely reverse for Ukraine, absent some kind of collapse on the Russian side. But let's say they not only push them back to their you know, pre-war positions, but then they manage to even take the, get momentum and retake Crimea. Is the international community going to say, you know what, you can't have any Ukrainians living there because you're an occupying power? They would have, we just retook it from them. What do you mean we're an occupying power? Uh, so the, the analogy there is, is obvious. Like another important point. It's absurd when the Palestinians say, oh, Israel's like Russia here. You know who doesn't think that? The president of Ukraine doesn't think that? Zelensky. Because he's asked Israel to be the mediator between Russia and Ukraine. You know, if you think that like Israel is like a aggressive, you're not going to like ask North Korea or Iran to mediate, right? Because you probably think, you know, they're on the side of the aggressor. They like aggressors or they want to like create a good precedent for it. They're going to pick a very sort of fair, objective, neutral country for the mediator. And he begged Prime Minister Bennett to serve as, as, as the mediator, which suggests that this, uh, you know, the, this Palestinian uh, attempt at creating an equation between Russia and uh and Israel is absurd in the eyes of even Zelensky, who would know who would know best. But you know, ironically, you know, it goes a little deeper because the as with many sort of lies about Israel, it's not just that they're untrue; they're the opposite of the truth. They're like an inversion of the truth. That's a point you see often. So it's not just that like there's really no equation between Israel and uh, uh, Russia. It's absurd. The and by the in Israel very properly does not want to take a very direct position in this conflict. Israel supported Ukraine, but it does not need to be the biggest supporter of Ukraine because it's just not the biggest anything. Small country that has only recently become a, you know, it's a, it's a regional power and nothing more. 
When it comes to humanitarian aid, though, Israel has punched. Yeah. So supported in, in economically, humanitarian support, supported Ukraine in clear ways. Has voted with Ukraine at the United Nations to condemn uh, Russia, unlike South Africa and many other supposed paragons of human rights. But the palace, it's not just that Israel is not in the role of Russia here, but actually the Palestinians' argument is functionally equivalent to Putin makes, Putin is basically making the Palestinian argument. Because Putin, you know, what's his argument? He's not saying I should like have these parts of Ukraine because I'm a bad meanie. He has arguments. The arguments are serious. They're just not correct. His arguments are that, you know, wherever Russian people, speaking people live, should not be under the rule of other people. Ukraine can't have a Russian-speaking minority. Well, what's that mean? That means you can't, Ukraine can't be a country. Right. Because political, political borders are drawn in such a way that they always include different peoples on different sides of the line. And in many places in Ukraine, you have the Russians, you have other, other minorities. Every country is like this. And indeed, we have a rule for figuring out the borders of countries. Right? And that rule is to go by the borders of the last top-level administrative, which in the case of Ukraine is the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which, yes, included Crimea, which was primarily a Russian-speaking area, an ethnically Russian area, which includes places like Donbass, which are primarily Russian-speaking areas. Putin says, no, we have to go by ethnic self-determination, whatever that, which is very hard to apply and administer. So wherever, you know, you have, like, Russian-speaking people, that this is the Rus- Ruski Mir, the Russian world theory, that, that has to be part of Russia or a pro-Russian state. And that's, of course, what the, what the Palestinians said. Any area, any neighborhood, any sector right, in which there are Palestinians, that can't be under Jewish rule. You have a neighborhood, Sheikh Jarrah, a small little neighborhood, right? a couple blocks by American standards. In that little neighborhood, Arabs are a majority. Israel can't be there. Jews can't live there. That's a Palestinian neighborhood, right? And this is how the media describes it. The media describes it in Putin-esque terms, right? When Putin says Donbass is Russian, that's a minimum. There's maybe a majority of Russian speakers, the plurality. But that, but yet we read Palestinian, Palestinian West Bank, Palestinian territory, which does not mean it's a political border, right? The political border, the only political border was the mandate of Palestine, right? When Israel was created, the last top-level administrative unit was the mandate for Palestine. That would become Israel's borders, just like the borders of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic would become Ukraine's borders. In the case of Ukraine, the international community accepts that principle. Of course, in the case of Israel, Russia, uh, the international community has a problem with the notion that there is a minority in a Jewish country, which is a way of saying you can't have a Jewish country. Because, you you know, even if you drew the borders of Tel Aviv, Right, there's minorities there, so to to have to carve out every minority area means you cannot have uh, cannot have a country. And this notion that people um, have to be grouped politically based on their ethnicity, that ethnic minorities can uh, tear away and join uh, some other politi- uh, political entity, is uh, in direct contradiction to international law, but very much aligned with uh, Putin's arguments. Which maybe is why it's actually not surprising that the Palestinians are openly and supportive. Supportive of Putin. Well, okay. Well, pretending that they're actually the Ukrainians. I mean, and what's the most egregious example here is, of course, Judea and Samaria, where they ethnically cleansed the Jews out of the 1948 and then said, well, so Jews aren't there. So obviously it doesn't belong to the Jews. So that's the exact opposite way that I imagine most of us would like the world to run. But, you know, that's, but people don't even know that. And, and so they let that stand. So where do you where do you see this going? I mean, you're not a you're a lot of things. Profit wasn't on your in your in your biography. I would, I would invest in the oil futures so heavily. 
I wouldn't need really? to talk to now. I'd be like doing my like a fidelity vanguard thing if I knew mm-hmm. if I knew what it was going. Exactly. Um, I don't know where this is going. I mean, I think the longer the war goes on, the worse it becomes for everyone. But all sides have a incentive, you know, have a good reason, hopefully, to look for an exit. But mm-hmm. uh, not good that the you know Putin has a great exit, given you know he came in with very ambitious goals. But he can probably tone down his goals and come out with something and still feel better off. It's very unclear how the Ukrainians can agree to any kind of deal with Putin that leaves him with anything that he would accept. And so then the question is, which side is the international community going to pressure? I would not be surprised if the international community winds up pressuring the Ukrainians to agree to some of Putin's terms if he doesn't ask for for too much. It's also possible both either side will collapse. It's very hard to actually know what's going on um, in reality. you don't yeah. trust the press, and I know you can read it in the original language. You don't trust the press on either side there. So the 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 you know the uh, Russian press is obviously government controlled and he- heavily censored. But in the Ukrainian government's statements about their military achievements and what else is going on in the field are clearly also self-serving and designed to advance their wartime interests. That's legitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. War propaganda. Except Israel, which is will not announce that it, you know will not announce that for sure there was a Hamas headquarters in the building that it bombed until it then conducts three forensic analyses after to make sure that what it did thought originally was in fact accurate. But most governments will um, you know use wartime propaganda to demoralize their enemies to increase their legitimacy. The Ukrainian government's clearly doing this. This is not a moral issue, but one just can't uncritically accept reports of either government. So we don't know really what's going on, but we do know that Russia has made real territorial gains and, you know, hard to imagine completely abandoning, completely abandoning them. So some of the political pundits are saying, I mean, at least I heard this a few days ago, that Russia wants to cut the Ukraine off from the Black Sea, that they would be satisfied with that, with a landlocked Ukraine, which of course has huge ramifications on so many levels. Yeah, that would be the kind, that would be the minor incursion, I think, that Biden originally spoke of, right? That is to say, if Russia had gone along the coast, taken Mariupol, hooked up with Crimea, they could have called it a day uh, a long time ago. And that's what's surprising. That would have seemed like an initial typical Putin strategy of taking like a, a slice that will not trigger a, a reaction from the West. And maybe that's what he will climb down to. But it's very hard for me to imagine Ukraine currently accepting a peace treaty mm-hmm. based on terms. But also at some point, they may run out of stuff and energy. So the, who knows? Or be threatened with some of those nuclear weapons and, you know, have to back down from a horrible scenario. You know, when those of us who live in the Middle East and those who pay attention to what's going on in the Middle East understand the power of power. And so just to bring it back here into our read, the behavior of the West vis-a-vis the Ukraine what's it doing to um, to embolden here not just Iran because Iran's the big the big player here but but it's not like the rest of our neighborhood is you know filled with the 36 righteous that we mentioned in the Jewish sources so like you know we're we're sitting here and watching here a lot of people are watching here how do you see that they're playing this out that the the world superpower is kind of leaving the stage and someone else is going to come and fill that vacuum here in the middle east yeah, so clearly Iran is the principal power in the Middle East, mm-hmm. you know, the principal actor. And we've seen that they have, you know, they've been attacking Saudi Arabia via, via their proxy, the Houthis, in a couple of days. But I don't think that's necessarily based on anything that's happening in Russia. I think the more America seems intent on agreeing to an Iran deal, the more it's in Iran's 
interest to really squeeze out everything they can, knowing, you know, knowing that like what, what's America going to do back then from the deal and from all this work they put in. You know, one country that is taking advantage is which had an interesting war with Armenia a few years ago, where it retook some territory that Armenia had previously took. And now Azerbaijan is beginning to move across the fire line. Armenia, in their ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan, they had agreed on having Russian peacekeepers were sort of sympathetic to the Armenians, and they were kind of protecting Armenia from further Azerbaijani incursions. So those peacekeepers, obviously, are not, you know, this is not the time that they're going to push back on the Azerbaijanis, because, you know, frankly, they're, they're going to be needed somewhere else, probably. So. And, uh, you know, the uh, keep things quiet there. The So Azerbaijan's clearly using this, but currently, you know, the main, the, the main actor, the main moving force in the Middle East, currently, is, is Iran, which, which, whose aggression takes place in so many countries. We saw, you know, their attack on their attack on the facility in Erbil, just in Iraq a week or two ago. Now missile attacks on Saudi Arabia. It's it's truly a nest, a global. It is a global operator. It is a country with extraordinary ambitions that are you know, throughout the Middle East and even. All right, so I'm going to go with your permission now to to some of the questions that we have. Well, somebody asked, "What is the case of advocates in the Biden administration of capitulation to Tehran and their argument that capitulation is in the American national interest?" I would say you probably answered that a few minutes ago by saying, you know, like if they kick this can down the road, it's somebody else's problem in a few years. Is that how you would answer that? Psychology. That's not what they'd say. No, it's yeah. Iran is going to agree that it's not going to develop. They stop it. They're agreeing. They're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. They're agreeing. The that's what they would say. I think that that is what they say. They're not going to say. They're not. They don't say they're capitulating. They got a great deal here. Peace in our time. Yeah, Neville Chamberlain, black umbrellas. That all comes to mind. Someone asked, slight change in topic. Why is Saudi Arabia seemingly impotent against Iranian aggression, direct and through the Houthis? The Saudis, you would think, should be able to afford and obtain any weapon system that exists. Now we're throwing um, the Houthis into the mix. I'm not, yes. I'm, not, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a military expert. I know Saudi Arabia is very aggressively involved in Yemen. I mean, the Yemen civil war, is uh, the Yemen war with Saudi Arabia and the UAE on one side and Iran on the other, is uh, seemingly one of these intractable things. As a matter of fact, I have to say it's well, you know, I'm a, you know, I wouldn't recommend Twitter to anyone, but once in a <laughs> while, one sees absolutely brilliant things that are summarized. You know, there was a, the Yemen had a civil, similar civil war in the 1960s with various other countries intervening and actually led to the split of Yemen and North and South Yemen to different countries. Someone said you know, when the, the when this round started in the this is the exact same civil war, similar North South divisions. Exact same civil wars in the 60s. Back then, it was communist versus monarchist. Now mm-hmm. it's versus Sunni, which kind of represents a lot about, like, the, the tweet didn't say. Changes in the Middle East, yeah. The evolution in general, the ide- ideological currents in the world. Monarchist versus communist was a real ideological division in the 60s. Now it's Sunnis versus um, versus Shia. But it seems very hard for either of those uh, proxies to uh, secure a decisive win. But the Saudis are being very... Uh, very aggressive, and apparently, you know, they have a lot of targets that can be hit, like their ships offshore. Mm-hmm. I think there's less Houthi targets to hit. Someone asked, sure. "What do you think of Biden's reference to the New World Order yesterday?" I, who knows what to think about what the president said yesterday? The president called, you know, called for regime change in Russia, and then took it back. So it's very hard to know. Mm-hmm. And what Anthony Blinken just today said some things that didn't go down well with a lot of the Israeli public about uh, what's happening here, but that's, well, that's for another time. This is an interesting question. Are there, is there any chance of Putin being overthrown? 
I I have no idea. That's, that's like is that even only Putin in his close circle? Uh, no, I would say I don't think it's so obvious that things like sanctions are going to work to do it in the short term, because you know whoever is very close to Putin is presumably not like a uh, what do you call it? The next ten people in line are not going to be Western liberals, so they're presumably people who have something you know invested in this kind of uh, method of government. So it, it's hard to see a feeble crippled, sanctioned Russia being good for them. I think, you know, all of their best case scenarios would be Putin somehow pulling it out and winning. Um, mm-hmm. When that becomes completely uh, a lost cause, that's such a thing I think it would be considered. But I, I, think, I think we're very far from that. Well, so someone asked Arnie Zeiderman, hi Arnie, can you comment on the questionable performance of the Russian military, if that's true? Because so what some people are saying is if the soldiers aren't happy, I mean, an army is only as good as the soldiers are, I would imagine, right? And if the soldiers aren't happy, yeah, no? We really don't know anything about this. Just don't know anything. Really don't. Just anything we're hearing is... Presumably the soldiers are unhappy, but soldiers often are unhappy. That's, not, that's a common thing. from Our primary reports are Ukrainian reports about how all the Russian soldiers are demoralized. But, you know, they probably... You know Lots of times before, we haven't done a you know happiness survey amongst Ukrainian soldiers. They're probably more motivated. But the question isn't, you know, are they motivated? The question is, are they going to keep fighting or are they going to stop listening to orders? You know, it seems the Russian military is moving forward, it's holding together. And I think the I think the Ukrainians have good reason to portray the Russian military as sort of about to have a para, you know a collapse because what do they want? They want help against Russia. You're only going to help against Russia if you think Russia can be beaten. If you think Russia's going to win, as the Western originally thought, then you're going to let them have it. So, but we 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 just don't know what the morale situation is, or you know whether whether it's really significant. Soldiers are always unhappy to be where they are, especially conscripts. So I just don't know what it means. Similarly, it's like accounts of you know people around Putin being unhappy. Very hard right. to know whether it's true. It seems to be primarily Ukrainian sources. No one really knows. And, uh, you know, when they interview captured soldiers, uh, that's very problematic evidence. I assume they're going to say whatever they think uh, the interviewer wants to have heard. They're alive. <laughs> right. I think that's a flaw that we all have. But in particular, you know, people in the West is actually believing what they read in, in the newspapers. Even while we know that it's, it's being twisted and we're being manipulated, there's still this tendency to believe it. And uh, that's a very dangerous thing, I would no, imagine. No, by the way, it may be true. It's just the fact that, you know, it's printed know. does not make it more or less likely to be true. Well, you at one point were a journalist, no? Yes, I was a reporter uh, actually at the Jewish Forward under its previous editorship of uh, the great Seth Lipsky, uh, mm-hmm. the Post and the Wall Street Journal. And so, yeah, I, when you look at articles, you have to see who are the sources for the, who are the, sources for the articles. The reporter is saying this firsthand. Is the same from government sources. And really, there's very little evidence about the overall morale of the Russian army, and certainly about you know the question of which morale actually is a, is a functional factor. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned the Wall Street Journal, and someone had asked me, and again, it's not in tonight's topic. You just had an article published there a couple of days ago. Would you comment on it if we have the time? I'm so happy to comment on this article because even though this is not the top, you know, usually you, you write articles in the Wall Street Journal so that like millions of people could read them. Um, <laughs> this article may not be read by millions of people because, you know, and I've like really have tried to measure this um, for real. It seems to be getting stepped on by Twitter, like uh, 
as if it were uh, as if it were Russian war propaganda. But the article was is about the origins of lockdowns that were used in the, and they again be used in response to in response to COVID. And uh, the article actually came out of a class that I taught at George Mason. I taught it several times in the past couple of years on legal issues related to the pandemic. And having known something about public health law, I know that there's certain things you do in public health. In the case of a pandemic, you do quarantines, you do isolation, which is to not let the sick people, people who are actually sick, go out. Quarantine, which is people who have a confirmed contact with sick people, can't go out. Those are things you do. But having read and known a bit about the history of uh, previous pandemics, 1918 pandemic, which was vastly more severe than COVID by by any measure, uh, lockdowns weren't part of it. And then I went back and I read various planning documents that the federal government had made for pandemics. So COVID was not what the pandemic anyone expected, but you know a pandemic was expected because they come around with a certain frequency, in particular influenza pandemics. And the federal government had spent a lot of time preparing for a 1918 type flu pandemic that would kill 3% of the population. Because you know, by some accounts, we're overdue. But the flu mutates with certain regularity. None of those plans contemplated lockdown. As a matter of fact, the most aggressive ones said maybe we could have a couple, what they call snow, a couple of days off. Right. Just, just, uh, just reason. Because they say there's no clear evidence they work. I'm just saying what's in these plans. I don't know. And because of their, what they call, said they're just extraordinary cost in the face of a pandemic that would be killing. Two, three percent of the population. So that leads to the question: where did this idea come from? And, right. and the only place we can trace it to, uh, the first states to adopt it were again you know, California, which is still in a state of emergency, followed by the other West Coast states, followed quickly by the rest of the world, because basically this is what China had done. And that was like the only real documented response, China and then Italy to, to COVID. And so as I say in my article, not only did we get China's virus, we we got we got its uh response. And I wrote co co-authored this article with Anastasia Li, a Chinese human rights activist, who also explains how uh, you know the Chinese government's way of approaching COVID is really part of a of a deeper ideology that you know individuals can be destroyed for the sake of the collective and that the party has the ability to defeat nature, that the party can reshape nature. Through, through painful tactics, but that ultimately, ultimately, that uh, it is possible to, you know, the communist idea of remaking man and remaking nature. So uh, I write about lots of controversial topics, Israel, Palestinian issues, and, you know, I know what retweet numbers roughly look like, depending on the topic, but the, the, this was this was something else, which is funny, because uh, that's another thing that they do in China. So, I mean, just to kind of bring what you just said, which seemingly isn't connected to the topic, but this one thing that's coming up here is, are, are we taking our leads from totalitarian regimes? I mean, if you're saying that the lockdowns came from China and that we're basically, the Western world to a great degree is giving into Russia, uh, at least when it comes to the Ukraine, and in the not distant future, possibly giving in to Iran on their on their sanctions. For those of us who are still living in democracies, still able to say, for the most part, what we think and feel without being arrested, the knock on the door, is this, is this a little bit more frightening than just a few possibly isolated incidents? The it's hard to know what the what the what what the what the broader trend is. Certainly it seems the West lacks a certain conviction. Maybe in the face of authoritarian uh, regimes, but what's I think the worst thing about it is that these things are many. Much of this is uh, voluntarily imported. Like I don't think there was any conspiracy for American states to uh, impose lockdowns. Just you know, it used to be. It's very interesting when you read the response. When you read what the ACLU and other groups were writing, 
2007 about the federal pandemic plans. That's when a lot of them were made, which did not involve any lockdowns. They were saying, hey, quarantines, isolation, you have to be careful. We have a constitution. You have to consider individual rights. And that response really seems to have waned. That's one thing. And of course, the other, there are general questions about the media, which we see in relation to Israel, in relation to Russia and Ukraine, certainly in relation to COVID and being very hard to get authoritative information. I put the link in the chat to the, to the article. I see that to your article. Okay, guys, let's kick but, it back. But, to- but China is, is another really interesting example. The United States government has declared under the Trump administration, that China is committing genocide against the Uyghurs. There's no talk of sanctions. There's no, you know, there's no talk of maximum sanctions, minimal sanctions. And I think this is one of the reasons that people, you know, human rights people, are attracted to the issue, issue of Israel, why they want to pressure Israel. Because they know that, like, in the end, they're going like, to let China do what it does and uh, allow Confucius Institutes to operate on their campuses and take money from despicable regimes. But like there needs to be somewhere to assuage your conscience. And specifically because Israel is not going to do anything bad to you. Right? They'll give you like an honorary degree at Hebrew University if you criticize them. Israel becomes a way of making points about human rights without any cost, and indeed with like even being fetid, both abroad and even in Israel, for doing it. So it's, it's literally like a kind of a ritualistic, ritualistic action, because you, you don't see this about in relation to, in relation to China. You know, and, the, and the other lesson, you know, well, one of the things Putin did wrong is he made too big a fuss. Right? I think if, you know, if he stuck to the limited incursion, people are very much driven by what they see on TV. Right? The fact that he carries on a large prolonged land war that's going to dominate headlines, that is that is uh, going to sway public opinion. If it was fast and if it was, you know, Putin had succeeded previously when he was fast. The Chinese succeeded doing anything they want when it's off camera. So that that's what drives reactions for better or for, for better or for worse. Okay. One last question from somebody and then I'm going to have to go guys. And I still have to be on a and a panel in an hour, two-hour panel on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict for some university in America. And if I cancel, then they don't have anybody with the quote-unquote right side coming on. So I got to save my energy. But one question, if someone asked about some kind of Middle Eastern NATO, you know, like some Middle Eastern treaty organization here of everybody but Iran, you know, all the all the crazy bedfellows that you could possibly imagine, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, you name it, getting together to to stop that. Do, do you see that? Is that like a total? I think it's called the, I mean, not everyone with this country is like gutter, they're more sympathetic to, to Iran. But I think, I think there's, you know, that kind of exists and it's called the Abraham. It doesn't need to be a formal military alliance. Formal military alliance is good if you, you know, but like for various reasons, but you don't have to formalize it to get the benefit. I think it's quite clear that Israel and many of its Arab neighbors are coordinating, coordinating against Iran. You know how close you know remains to be seen, but that's that's a good thing. But you know it's not necessarily, but it's not necessarily enough. I want to just say before we before we sign off that you know I will be having another event that I just want to let people um, know about. Um, that in uh, on April six, which is in uh, a bit more than a bit more than a week, I will be having an event at my a Zoom conference at my event at my center at George Mason uh, University on a uh, very interesting topic on settlers in occupied 
territory, subject people might find interesting, but in particular on Turkish, maybe hundreds of thousands of them, in northern, in northern Syria, which is not a topic that we typically hear much about. Even just in the past years, Turkey has transferred maybe or hundreds of thousands uh, of people into this uh, territory. And with, we're going to discuss what this means for the Middle East, for Israel, for international law, free, and we'll have lots of interesting experts. And I'm looking forward to learning from the discussion. You're all invited. Okay. And I see that you put, did you put a link to that in the chat? In the flyer. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, Thank you all. Thank you for joining everybody. So if you didn't get enough of Professor Eugene Kontrovich tonight, you can, you can get together with him again next week. Thank you so much again for your insights. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Thanks to One Israel Fund for sponsoring this webinar and all the webinars that we do. And we will have one in another few weeks. Thanks to Shauna for being the lady behind the scenes. And again, I apologize for my um, less than stellar and strong performance tonight, but we're doing our best and I'm self-quarantining in a country that currently isn't on lockdown. So we're, we're doing the best we can You're here too. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, take care everybody. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Shalom, my name is Jeremy Gimpel. A few months ago, we started an online seminar teaching life-changing biblical wisdom revealed from the original Hebrew and straight from the mountains of Judea. With global instability on the rise, more and more people are turning to God, realizing now they don't exactly know where to look for guidance. The Bible says the guidance will come from the land of Israel. What started as an online seminar has grown into a global fellowship with hundreds of members from over 30 countries. We are participating in fulfilling prophecy as we learn the Bible through the eyes of prophecy, with a focus on what it's telling about us in our lives today. What you will discover is that the wisdom transmitted thousands of years ago is speaking directly to us in our time right now. Instead of learning the Bible as a religion, it's the Torah of Israel, the living guidance of God. So please join us for our next online gathering and get access to the full library of teachings that the Land of Israel Fellowship is offering. Join now and get an audio series on the prophecy encoded in the book of Joshua, absolutely for free. Just click on the link below or email fellowship at thelandofisrael.com. I don't know how you found this video or what compelled you to click on that link, but I don't believe in coincidence, and I would encourage you to take the next step on your journey toward the land of Israel. I hope to see you at the Land of Israel Fellowship. Shalom. Shalom.